Welcome to The Knowledge Project. I'm your host, Shane Parrish, curator behind Farnham Street, an online intellectual hub of interestingness that covers topics like human misjudgment, decision-making, strategy, and philosophy. The Knowledge Project allows me to interview amazing people from around the world to deconstruct why they're good at what they do. It's more conversation than prescription. On this episode, I have Ryan Holiday. Since dropping out of college at 19 to apprentice under strategist Robert Greene, the author of The 48 Laws of Power, Ryan has advised many New York Times best-selling authors and musicians. He's a master, and some would say manipulator, of the media, as his first book, Trust Me, I'm Lying, outlines. His latest book, The Obstacle is the Way, reached bestseller status. We explore how he reads, what it means to be a Stoic, and his infamous no-card system. The conversation is actually cut short. We originally had 90 minutes booked for this interview, but I forgot to turn on the recorder, so we had to re-record the entire interview. Ryan got to practice some of that famous stoicism. With that said, I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Before I get started, here's a quick word from our sponsor. This podcast is supported by Slack, a messaging app bringing all your team's communication into one place so you can spend less time answering emails and attending meetings and spend more time being productive. Visit slack.com slash Farnham to create your team and get $100 in credits that you can use if you decide to switch to a paid plan. Where do we want to start? Uh, let's start with what is stoicism again. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we'll go quicker. This just, uh, we were just talking for about 20 minutes and just realized that the uh, microphone wasn't on. Wouldn't it be funny if I like freaked out and knocked over all the mics and was just very unstoic about it? <laughs> Um, no, no. So, so stoicism is a practical philosophy, right? Most people think when they think philosophy, they think college professor lecturing them. Stoicism is, uh, you know, it's favored by statesmen, politicians, soldiers, artists, etc., because it's really at its core, I think, a series of maxims, maxims and exercises for how to live what they would call a good life or to live virtuously or with excellence. And, um, you know, if I was to sort of sum up the central maxim there, it would be you don't control the world around you. You control how you, you control your thoughts. You control how you respond to the world around you. And so the Stoics are focused exclusively on that stuff. And that's a, not just a competitive edge, but it's a recipe for, I think, contentment and fulfillment and stuff like that. And so what really pulled you into that was, uh, I think, the book recommendation by Dr. Drew. Yeah. So I was at a conference. I said, hey, what books would you, I sort of found him afterwards. I said, hey, like, I really love to read. I know you read. What would you recommend that I read? And he told me about Epictetus. I looked up Epictetus on Amazon. Uh, Marcus Aurelius was there, who I'd always liked the movie Gladiator. So I was like, oh, I'll get that too. I read Marcus Aurelius. And Marcus Aurelius is just, it's just this totally unique historical document in the sense that it is the most powerful, successful man on earth at that time, literally worshipped as a god. He's deified writing notes to himself about how to be a better person that was never intended for publication. And that survives to us. And so when I picked that up at 19, it was like so radically different than what I'd learned in school, radically different than any self-help book I'd ever read, radically different than any of the crap my parents had ever told me. And so I was just like, wow, this is, this is what I want. This is what I want to be. This is how I want to live my life. And was that the Hayes translation? Yeah. The Gregory Hayes translation. So the, one of the mistakes I see people do when they read philosophy is they cheap out. Like, oh, this is free on Project Gutenberg. First off, it's free because according to the copyright system, it's not worth anything, right? Like, that's why yeah. it's free. Um, 
every generation needs its own translation because uh, a book like Marcus Aurelius, he's writing to himself in colloquial personal language. So when you see like, thou shall not, that's not, he didn't say that. That's what someone in the 17th century would have said. Yeah. And so you, I, I think you want to read the best translation you can. And right now that's Gregory Hayes. I remember reading, I first came across that, I think in university and it wasn't the Hayes translation. Sure. And I read this and I was like, it's very what, dense. what the f*** is this? And yeah. then I found the Hayes translation just randomly in an airport one day. And I started reading it going, why didn't I read this before? Totally. Like, what was I thinking? Like, who was hiding this for me? This is crazy. Yeah. So who are your favorites then in terms of the, the, uh, the Stoics, I guess? Um, so Marx Aurelius is my favorite. Probably Seneca is my second favorite. Seneca was uh, a high sort of profile political advisor. He was also a, a very famous playwright at the time, uh, famous enough that one of his, um, as I was saying earlier, I'm trying to remember what I said and didn't say. One of, one of Seneca's lines from his plays is actually a graffitied line on a wall at Pompeii that's just been preserved for us. So like, he's one of the most famous writers of his time and his plays are actually great. Um, but uh, I like Seneca a lot. Um, I like I like Epictetus. Epictetus is a bit preachy for me, um, but those are the big three. I've read the others. The others are much harder to understand. Um, like Chris Phyllis or... Yeah, if you want to read the others, the best thing to do is Diogenes Laertes wrote this book that's sort of a biography of all the other oh, okay. all philosophers. It's right. like a multi-volume series. But the one of the volumes is about the Stoics. And so it's like he's giving a biography, but then also quoting all their best lines. The reason Seneca, Marcus Aurelius, and Epictetus are also the most famous is because their works survive the most completely. Right. So all you really get from the other people are fragments anyway. So Seneca is fascinating to me in that uh, he led this this life that's been portrayed in multiple ways, right? Yeah. So maybe we, we already had this conversation, but maybe you can give me a... <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so Seneca's most famous letter, or one of his most famous letters, is to his mother after he'd been exiled. And we don't know whether he deserved to be exiled or not. He Supposedly he had an affair with uh, is it Claudius, maybe Claudius's, uh, no, Caligula's like sister-in-law. Okay. He, he had an affair with a famous woman and was exiled from Rome. And his mother was, of course, devastated. He, as a political insider and a powerful person, was, of course, devastated. This is the end of his professional life. Right. And so he's sent away. And so he uh, lost all power, lost all everything. influence, everything. Yeah. And um, so he's not just writing about philosophy. In theory, he's writing about it as someone who underwent, you know, who lost everything. It'd be like going bankrupt tomorrow or being impeached from office or something. And so um, and then he's recalled to Rome on the condition that he become Nero's tutor. Um, and he accepts Nero at the time was just a child, right? So no one knew whether he was really good or bad or anything. But um, it became increasingly clear that this was a deranged pathological individual like a, right. a true psychopath yeah and um he's and and so not only is seneca his mentor trying to curb these things but he's also becoming immensely rich he was one of the richest men in rome because the emperor is his you know he he's almost more powerful than the emperor right so there's that and then you know he's an artist which i imagine was stressful and interesting so it's just some even in his own time a, a lot of people thought he was hypocritical um but at the same time, they loved his writing and they loved his essays. And he was one of the most prominent 
considered to be one of the wisest men at the same time. So he's complicated like everyone else. And as someone who's worked for complicated people, and I have a bit of a complicated reputation myself, like I, I very much related to this idea that um, there's just a lot more than people see when they hear like rich guy, Nero's tutor, famous writer, stoic. Uh, so it's almost impossible to comprehend what this individual must have been like. I think we're like that with almost everybody, right? We paint them with some sort of brush or label based on a soundbite, a tweet, you know, a headline in a newspaper. Uh, and we don't think that we're, you know, we don't think about that person or what's going on in their life or why they make these choices. Yeah. In the Eric Rom book, which I know you've recommended, he says, he, he says that the uh, Seneca's critics, and I won't try to pronounce the Greek word, they, what they called him was tyrant teacher. Right. There's, there's actually a Greek word for that. And um, that was a, considered an epithet, right? And as someone who has represented uh, individuals, many of which are very hated, I've got this, I, I've myself been accused of enabling these people or encouraging these people or being worse than these people, you know? So like I, and then, you know, I, I've, my opinion of some of the people that I've worked for has changed over time. And, and I, I read that book about Seneca around the time that American Apparel was collapsing and Dev Charney, who was the CEO, sort of went through, you know, did some things I very much disagree with. And so, you know, it was like, uh, there's this great line in one of Seneca's plays where he says, crimes often return upon their teacher. And, you know, that that's what happened to Seneca, right? Seneca is ultimately forced to commit suicide by Nero. Um, it's, it's very, uh, prescient remark that he would write in one of his plays some thing that basically describes the fate that would befall him and as that was sort of happening to me and i read that book i i thought like i i relate on a very small scale to what that person must have been like and what they must have gone through you stopped going to school when you were 19 yeah can you walk me through that decision and what you did right after that? Well, I mean, one of the first things I like to do, if only for my own sake, is I, even though I, like, look, I wrote my biography, so I'm responsible for the per the people who say, like, hey, um, you know, you dropped out of college at 19. But it's interesting how things can become, in retrospect, more significant than they are. And Nassim Taleb calls this the uh, the narrative fallacy. Um, you, you tell yourself a story about your life. So it's like, Col the, my sophomore year of college ended, you know, two weeks before my 20th birthday. And that's when I stopped going to school. So did I drop out when I was 19 or did I drop out when I was 20? Um, is that semantic or is that a that's a very significant percent of your life? Yeah. Right, it's big. Um, so, but anyways, I left when I was 19 or 20 to, I was, I was at the time I was a, a sort of a marketing, um, uh, manager for Tucker Max who had, you know, written these best-selling books and had a sort of a media empire. I was, I was uh, working at a talent agency in Hollywood. I signed some of the first YouTube clients to ever become sort of professional actors and content creators. And then um, I got a, a tryout to be a research assistant for the author Robert Greene, who wrote the 40 Laws of Power. And so it was just, it was three things that if you told me when I was graduating that I could choose one of them, I would have said college was worth it. So to me, it was, should I stay in school? Should I turn down these things, stay in school? Cause that's what you're supposed to do. And then hope to get this lucky again. And so I, I tried it. And so we were talking earlier about being busy and saying yeah. no to things and doing three things at once. Sounds like it's a lot. And how have you, 
you're always doing multiple things at once. Sure. You're always trying to do a lot. How do you juggle that? Well, it was a lot, but it was also very formative, right? So I was working in, you, you could argue that what I do now is a combination of all those three things, right? I have my own marketing company. I write books and I, um, uh, and I, and I advise sort of clients and, and people on strategies, right? So it's a combination of those three things. And so instead of developing them, concurrently which would have taken a long time or no consecutively which would have taken a long time i did them concurrently and so it compressed you know you want to say your ten thousand hours if i'm close to that it compressed it in three years instead of ten or four you know probably closer to four but i did i was very overwhelmed and very busy but by not doing it at a leisurely pace i got to skip ahead in line so to speak but it's also been a tendency in my life that I just commit to a lot of stuff. So like, not only was I working for all those people, but I never like stopped working for those people. I would just start doing more things. And so, you know, I probably worked for Robert for like five or six years. And if you called me today, I'd, oh, what do you need me to do? Um, and so it's very, it's very, um, it can be very exhausting, but it's also a bit of a compulsion for me. It's hard for me to say no to things. Um, and you kind of reached a tipping point recently on that, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, around the time of the collapse of American Barrel, I was just very overworked. And I like I built this life for myself here in Austin where I live, and yet I was in LA. I was had to show up in an office every day. I was dealing with all sorts of stuff I tried to cut out of my life because like someone called me and said, Hey, like, we need you. Can you come? And I said, I'll be on the next plane. And I, the idea of stopping and going, What's the opportunity cost of this? Or should I say yes? Is this what I want? Um, what, you know, what, am, what is going to, what's going to be the problem here? And I didn't ask that until sometimes you got to touch the stove to get burned. And so I really got burned and overwhelmed. Um, and I've, I've tried to get better at saying no, but I, I would say, you know, this is a very first world thing and I, I get that, but one of the hardest things in the world for people to do is to say no to money. It's just extraordinarily difficult. Um, it almost doesn't matter how much, right? Like if somebody totally. offers you 20 bucks to do something in the next 10 minutes or something. I remember like my wife makes fun of me because like a couple years ago we were like walking into like a Home Depot or something and I was like, oh, they're hiring. And she was like, are you looking for a job? But it was like, like somehow like I can't even, I just couldn't turn off that part of my brain. The idea of like, there's an opportunity. Should I consider that? Like, yeah. like, and this I have is crazy. 20 minutes right, right now. This yeah. is, right. Right. Like, and so for me, it's, it's, uh, my wife's the same way. It's like when we see stuff, we think about like, why shouldn't we do it? We don't think like, what is the opportunity cost? We don't think, you know, do we need this? We think, well, they're paying us for it, you know, but, and that, that is not great. That's not a great attitude if you're trying to produce lasting work or, to be the ultimate best at what you do. So how has your framing changed now in um, terms of these costs? And the, I mean, you must be bombarded all the time with... I mean, not as much as you think. Like, I don't want to make it sound like I'm just drowning in opportunities. Like, it, I, I'm certainly not there. But um, one of the things that was formative for me is, like, I'd said yes to a bunch of... I said yes. So I said yes to working on this one book. And um, then for, for some personal reasons, I backed out of it. And then, like... A week later, um, Tony Robbins called me and wanted me to work on his book for like double the amount. And that book has sold like a million copies since. It was like a huge, big life changing opportunity for me. But I just committed to this other thing, not thinking about it. like the, I, it was, you need to have the confidence to be able to go like things are going to be okay in the future. Right. So you're not, um, 
you know that what's that uh um, you're not driven by that immediate kind of yeah there's that fable about you know the ant and the cricket about the you know the, the ants always preparing for winter while the cricket's like playing and then the the ants well if you actually read about that story some of the interpretations the interpretation of the allegory has changed in different eras um you know the ant if the ant is over preparing at a certain point it's missing out on life that the cricket is experiencing right and so um i i think for me it, it's this idea of like okay this is what enough is or this is what this is what my baseline is and i have to be able to to say no sorry that's not enough and it's also understanding what makes you happy, right? And we're <laughs> totally, you, yeah, yeah. Like, and that it was like, okay, I'm making great money doing this thing, but I have to show up in an office, and my whole life is about was about not having to show up for an office, right? right. Um, there's that throw line, like, be wary of any enterprise that requires new clothes. It's like if you don't, if you like, like if you don't like having to dress up for work, don't. It doesn't matter how good the opportunity is. If they make you dress up for it, you know, like I, I, I you got to think about what's important to you. And if you don't know, you can end up very far. If you don't know and you don't make those decisions um, one by one, you will end up very far from where you need to be to be happy. Right. Oh, I want to come back to working with Robert Greene. Yeah. What did you learn from that? Uh, I mean, I learned everything, right? Like he, I would not be a writer if it wasn't for Robert Greene. I would not be able to think the way that I think if it wasn't for Robert Greene, I'd be a much worse person if I never met Robert Greene, which I know is probably funny to people who hear that, you know, he's the author of the 48 Laws of Power. Robert is one of the most generous, patient, um, wisest people that I've ever met. Um, I, you know, I started for him, I was transcribing interviews for a book that he was writing with 50 Cent. And then he would start to let me read books that he didn't want to read, that he thought there might, you know, he remote like, possibility. He's like, look, there's a one percent chance this book has some material in it that I might be able to use. Please read it. And most of the time, my answer was like, yeah, you're right. There's nothing here. Um, but he would say like, you know, I want. I remember he was saying like, he's like, in the Fifty Cent book, he was like, I'd like to include some stories of like the great black boxers he's like but i've already written about muhammad ali in my other books so let's see what you can find and so i read biographies of joe lewis and jack johnson and uh all these other people and and so i was like that was like one of my first contributions to one of his books like i was like there's something there about joe lewis like here's what i would suggest you that's how that worked like hey i read this biography of joe lewis um, this is something I think you should check out. There might be something there. And then he goes and finds it. I'm not like contributing in any way there. I'm just, hey, I've eliminated this for you. Check this. But those, like, I never would have read those books if he hadn't assigned me to read them. So in a weird way, it was like, it was sort of like a college-esque experience in that I have an instructor who's assigning me to explore certain things. It was like a work study program. I think you refer to it as almost an apprenticeship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not an official apprenticeship and like we didn't yeah. sign like a contract. But yeah, the the idea is at a certain point after I'd gotten a little bit better, he was like, what do you want to do? Because that's how I can make, if you could tell me how I can help you with what you want to do with your life. And this is a conversation I have with people that I work with now. If you, he's like, I'm not going to pay you like a ton of money, but if you can tell me what you want to do with your life, I can make sure this is very rewarding for you. And it was like, he, he showed my note card system. How I research books now is a direct result of the system that he taught me. And how I think about books is a result of, you know, I would go 
you know, he'd be like, I want you to do this. I want you to do this. Can you do this? Can you do this? And I, and then I'd be like, okay, but I have one question. Like, I remember one time I was like, Robert, like, who makes the indexes for books? Like, how does that happen? And he was like, oh, like, cause I thought like one of the things that was intimidating to me about writing a book was like, do I have to like, do I have to do that? And he was like, oh no, that just like happens. A publisher just does that. I was like, oh, okay. Like, so it was just little right. things. And then when I decided to write my first book, he walked, he was like, he walked you, you through he the walked process. Me through it. That's awesome. Um, let's geek out for a second yeah. because the number one question I got <laughs> when I told people I was interviewing you is yeah. they want to know about this infamous note card system. Can you walk me through uh, Robert's system and then how you've adapted that to your system now. Sure. So Robert does, uh, he's not quite Robert Caro who writes everything longhand, but Robert, um, I would say probably 80% of his work is in the research and 20% is in the writing. And all the writing is done on these note cards. So you would read a book, he would read a book, go through it and take notes, uh, mark things that he liked, and then he would transfer that knowledge onto note cards. And then if you note, like, so the 48 laws of power might be 48 sections, and then each law is supported by note cards. And so the way that works with a research assistant is like, my job is to find the materials to go in the note cards. Right. So then when he's writing law six in the 50th law or whatever, there's stuff for him to rely on. And um, so I started using note cards myself. And Really, I just started, I would write stuff I would, I would see a quote that I would like or a word I would like or a story I would like. I would just write it down on this note card. And I just had a collection of note cards, um, until I had enough note cards that I started organizing them by theme. And then when I wrote my first book, it was, uh, trust me, I'm lying. It was, I spent a year before I left American Apparel writing note cards around media and hey, this is good. I would read this book and then I would, you know, all this stuff. And, uh, it became, you know, hundreds and hundreds of note cards. And then what that allows you to do is when you, like, my book, uh, The Obstacle is the Way is three parts, 10 chapters in each part. Okay. So, um, that would be 30 parts plus an intro and a conclusion, right? So that's 32 sections. Um, and you're just filling that up. But let's say I'm writing part two, chapter six. That's all I have to carry with me if I'm going to the library or I'm on the road. Right. And you're not carrying the whole book around in your head. You're not sitting down and just writing where it leads you. You're focused on that individual section, which makes it all much more manageable. And how did you pick the themes that you came up with originally? For what? For it, your note card system. For all, just, uh, it's really just a function of the material, right? Like, you're not like, oh. It's a personal categorization of. Yeah, it's like, look, I read a lot of books about stoicism, so I have a huge section of note cards that are on stoicism. Um, but the obstacles away, like, um, you know, I was writing, I, I read this, this section in Pierre Hadot's The Inner Citadel, where he talks about this stoic idea of turning the obstacle upside down which is how you take a negative thing and turn it into a positive thing. And I wrote that down. Right. And then I would read other examples of people doing that. And I would write that down and I'd write in the corner, turning the obstacle upside down. So I got to, you know, 20 note cards about that topic. And then I said, hey, when I was thinking about what I wanted to do for my next book, I was like, I think there's something there. And so I wrote a proposal, I sold it. And then I said, okay, I've got 20 note cards. I need a thousand to write a book. Now I have to go read and explore and find things to, to break and to, to build up this database of knowledge, essentially. And then, um, and so how do you store these? There must be thousands of them. There are thousands of note cards there. I, I use this thing. It's called a cropper hopper, which is just a weird 
thing they used to make to store um store like photos photos because a four by six photo is the same size as a note card so um i just have bought i used to buy one at a time then i started running they started stop making them so i've got my garage full of them but each one of my books is one of those boxes then i have a i used to have just one box of general note cards in different categories that have not become books or anything yet and now that's split into two and so do you store these electronically what is Um, so i store them in my office um i got really scared like my house got broken into a couple years ago and i was really scared that like someone stole them not knowing what they were um they didn't thankfully and then but it all would have been gone like it all, all i would have lost research. years of knowledge and then ironically i came home and knocked the box over and uh <laughs> disorganized everything but uh robert a couple years ago found a scanner that can scan note cards so every couple of weeks i have an assistant go through scan all of them and then i back them up to dropbox so you don't use evernote or anything like that uh i don't even know how to use evernote and a lot of people go like oh your system it sounds just like evernote it's not Evernote. It's physical note cards for a reason. Like Raymond Chandler has a line, if you take the pain to write it down, you're more likely to remember it and use it. The idea of just quickly being able to copy and paste stuff is antithetical to what I'm doing and why. Like it's the ritual that's important and the act of taking it longhand is very important. Obviously, if it's like a you know huge paragraph, I'm going to type it out, but it's still no copying and pasting that's sort of the law the rule the rule because it's about taking the knowledge from the book running it through your body and then putting it in a in a thing that you can manipulate but still have tangibly in front of you right like like my note i could i could lay out the box for obstacles away and it would be right there and you could see it and while it was there i could move stuff around i could say actually yeah this chapter is going to be moved into part three or this note card i thought this note card would work for somewhere in section two but it didn't so i'm going to rework it into section one i can move stuff around so i have a physically and visually yes and i think that's very very important i don't want it to be a black hole on my computer but it's not searchable right like how hard is it it's not searchable if i Look, if I ever couldn't find something, I could have someone go through them for me or I could go through them, which I do all the time. Um, but I've never, I, one, I, my memory works as such, like I could tell you what different passages look like in books on my shelf, where that shelf is. I, I'm, I'm a bit like, I don't know, Asperger like that, I guess, but I, I've not found, I think people overestimate like they're like, oh, I need it to be searchable. It's like, well, what have you ever done with it, right? Like I think a lot of people get very nerded out about the system and about having like the perfect optimized thing when, um, you know, if you told me they'd written 30 books, I'd be like, okay, your system's better than mine. But it's certainly not, help- I mean, I've it's written like four optimizing books. for what? Yeah, I've written four books in four years. Like uh, it's, it's, uh, it's not, ha- not having it searchable has not held me back in any way that I can currently tell. And you wouldn't, you don't envision doing things differently in the future? Um, no, I don't think so. So what's your workflow like for writing a book? Maybe walk me through kind of, okay, I have mean? an idea, uh, not from a publishing perspective, but from a writing perspective. So you go from an idea, what is the structure and the tools that you're using to put that together? So you, you, you have an idea, you do the research, you put the, you get the note yeah. cards, you arrange them. Are you writing and like, how are you? 
I mean, that's a, that's a more difficult question to, I think when you write your, your book, you will not ask that question because like, it's just different. Like people go like, how long did it take you to write it? And it's like, I don't know, because when did it start, right? Did it right. start when I was born? Did right. it start when I first had the idea? Did it start when you sold it? Um, you know, my, my book that's coming out in June, I started writing it January 1st of 2015. Like I know that, and my first the book, day. I started June 17th. 2011. I know the exact day that I started, but I've been researching them for years, right? Like, so, and I know when I sold it. So it's, it's a little weird, right? But, um, when you, when you have, you have the idea, you're researching, it's sort of like you have this general sense of what you're trying to say and what you believe. And then you, you know, you sort of let the confirmation bias do its work, right? Because you're only thinking about this thing. You weirdly just attract all sorts of things that could support that idea or would be interesting to discuss in that idea. And so one of the, one of the downsides of that is you're paranoid someone's going to steal your idea all the time, but they're not. You're just thinking about your idea all the time. So you feel almost a, a pressure to, to get it out there really quickly. Totally. So nobody. So what I do is, um, when I sit down to write, let's say I'm, I've broken it up into pieces. That's part of what the note card system does. So it's like today I'm writing the intro. Like on so when I say chunked it. on January 1st, I started, I was writing the intro. And now that intro is radically different now than it was, but I was writing that. And then I got to a point where I could say like the in the rough draft of the intro is done. Then now I'm writing, you know, part one, chapter one. And I'm writing these discrete pieces because writing a book is very demoralizing. Um, like think about it. Let's say a book is 60,000 words. And you're writing 500 words, 500 usable words a day, let's say, which is, you know, people write two or 3,000, but you know, getting rid of them, right? So, um, you, you could work for eight hours on something or three hours work. You could work of a day's work of writing and make no visible, perceivable progress towards your goal. So there's no, you only get to the light at the end of the tunnel, like three or four months in or, you know, think about someone like Robert Caro who's been, he wrote, um, you know, he's been writing about Lyndon Johnson for like 40 years. He's, Lyndon Johnson's like 60 in the book, right? And so he's like, and that's only to get him, him to volume four. So, um, you, you have to break it up into discrete tasks. Um, at least I think I, when you break it into dis discrete tasks, then like even Robert Caro, he knows the last sentence and the first sentence of the book and then everything else is filling it in. But you, what you don't do, what I think is the most dangerous thing for writers to do is to just, and maybe it works when you're writing fiction, I don't know, but sitting down and just writing. You, like you can't hit a target that you didn't aim for. Oh, but for. that's like the whole notion that people sell, isn't it, about being an author? Totally. Oh, you just go to the coffee shop, you sit down, the words magically Ugh. spew out of your mouth. And I mean, there's the, there's this Hemingway quote where he says, writing is easy. It's just sitting down and writing, sitting down at a typewriter and opening a vein or something, right? And um, that would be great, except for he didn't write that way. Like if you look at um, A Farewell to Arms, there are eight no, 27 handwritten different endings to that book. So he was not sitting down and bleeding unless he was bleeding to death, right? Like he was meticulously right. editing and rewriting and getting closer to something. Like, so writing, I think when you break it up into tasks, you're like, okay, all I have to do is get these 2000 words right. That's 
much easier to wrap my head around. And then later you're linking all these pieces together. But I write, I write in, this is another weird thing with that. So I write those, those chunks in Google Docs, like in separate Google documents. So I'm not doing like a day to day word count. It's like, Hey, today I'm writing part two, chapter four. And then only when I've gotten to the end, do I then combine all the things and then begin to look at the book as a whole? So it's a big, then I switched to, and this is all personal, but then I switched to Microsoft Word. So I'm taking it off the internet and now it's a, now it's a distinct manuscript. Right. And, um, now I'm thinking about the project as a whole. I think editing while you write, the whole thing is hard, but if you're just doing these pieces, then I'm able to sort of be a bit recursive about these smaller sections. And do you map it out in that, like, today I'm going to do this section, tomorrow I'm going to do this section? Are you doing anything else while it's, you're doing this? It's not scheduled, like, on Tuesday I'm doing this and Wednesday I'm doing this. It's more like you have to go from A to Z, and so you're starting in A, and then when you're done with A, then you move on to B. Um, but, like... I don't write full time like I could, but I have a company and I, I I try to write one or two articles a week. I have my own site. Um, I do a lot of consulting uh, for the first three books. I was also working in American Apparel. So I tend to I don't know how someone writes for an entire day. So I write I usually get up early. I love your stuff about, you know, if you want to be more productive, wake up early. I wake up around seven. I try to start writing by like eight. And I write usually like at like eleven, eleven thirty. Like I'm done. There's it's it's hard. It's for draining. Me to, it's very draining, and you just hit diminishing returns, right? Yeah. So then I stop, and then I I don't give myself a break for the rest of the day. I'm not going to work for three hours. Um, I I work on my other stuff. So I just schedule everything after I start. But writing. you're matching your energy and intensity to the work in some way, right? Yeah, yeah. Like you're writing to. You're writing till you stop, and then you're moving on to these other things. And then usually throughout the course of the day, other things occur to you that would be valuable to the writing, and you're either taking notes and doing them tomorrow, or you're I'm sending an email to myself or whatever. Like, for instance, I like to exercise in the middle of the day, not in the middle of the day, in the mid-afternoon. Okay. So it's like I write till, let's say, hypothetical schedules. I'm writing till 11, from 11 to 3, I'm doing calls or working on client stuff or I'm editing stuff for other people, whatever I'm doing. And then at three, I'm going to go for like an hour run. And on that run, wherever I was stuck in the writing, some of that's going to come loose in my head and I'm going to be like, oh, that's a great phrase. And I'll email it to myself or I'll, got to remember this when I come home. And then I'm like bursting in like some, the amount of times I've burst into my house and said to my wife, like, don't say anything to me. Like, until I get this down on paper and then I'm just writing, you know, in shorthand, like little notes. And and then it's like, and that, then I can go back to being a normal person. So I either run or swim, but that breaks it up for me. And what's your night like? Um, I usually am done by like five or six. And then I just sort of dick around. Um, we watch, we eat dinner, we watch TV, we play with our animals. Sometimes I'll check email. Like I'm checking email throughout this time. I'm not, not working at all, but, um, so you are one of the quickest responders that I know for a busy person on email. Can you, how do you do that? I mean, my job is to communicate the, like, so I don't do much phone. So I'm sitting there working on stuff. And part of what I'm working on is email. I mean, I'm amazed. My, I get responses from you sometimes. I've like barely hit send and gone to like a new message and it's like a well, response. So I'm like inbox zero. So like I'm, 
I pride myself on having gotten to a point that I can deal with stu- new stuff as they come in. But one of my tricks is, like, if you send me something and it's worth responding to, I'm responding. If someone is sending me something like, you know, I'll get a letter from someone who read one of my books. It's really nice. But I, you may have written about this, the, the Eisenhower stuff, urgent, not important or whatever. Yeah. Um, I save a lot of stuff until late, like, like to you, I'm res- this is so maybe this doesn't work, but to you, I'm responding in two minutes. But then I have people I owe emails to from three weeks ago that I probably won't do until the next time I'm on a flight or I'm stuck without Wi-Fi and I'm just getting caught up on old stuff. I'm notoriously bad for email and I struggle with something that maybe you struggle with as well, which is I get a lot of unsolicited email that uh, I feel in some ways that people are burdening my time and they're like not what? necessarily thinking about it like the request can you read this 20 page document i got one oh. last week can you do is you know well worded but it was basically yeah. like can you do my homework assignment for me yeah so one I, ramid sethi talks about this a lot where it's like you can just not respond like just pretend you didn't get but it i have personally i struggle like totally. I, i've adapted over the last year i would say i've come leaps and bounds but at first i had to respond to everything sure so i find like on stuff like that responding is what they want, right? You don't actually have to do the request. You can say like, hey, I can't read this, but here's a thought. Or um, like, I'll go like, hey, one of the things I think about for the articles I write is what do I get the most email about? Can I write an article about that? Because now I, now the first, I know that at least one person is interested in this idea. Oh, that's a really good idea. And then now in the future all emails i get about this thing like how do i find a book agent boom here's all i don't even link them to the post i I just go like i wrote an article about this google my name and book agent and then it'll come up and so i'm i'm sort of treating it like a frequently asked questions thing that's a a sign that somebody us you know like what does a politician go like one calls a thousand constituents or whatever it's probably similar on email most people don't email (laughs) <laughs> I've I've started adding a little bit of friction to it. I like your idea of you always have some sort of caveat. Like if you email me, think about it beforehand. And yeah, and my reading newsletter, which I recommend books, I was just tired of people going like, they would just email me their thoughts, which is great. But like, it's like, what do you want me to do with this? So, um, but the reality is like, I don't think it actually deters anyone. Um, so one thing I've done uh, that I find interesting, and I don't know where I got this, I didn't come up with it myself, which was when people are sending me 20-page, 30-page documents, proposals, yeah. I'll just reply saying, hey, my, uh, you know, can you print this out and mail it to me? And so what I've done is now I've added some sort of, sure. and if they do and they mail it to me, I will read it. But if it's not worth their time to print it out and mail it, because it's so easy sure. to send email. And a lot of them are, I don't want to say form emails, but, you know, it's very easy to insert, you know, switch Ryan yeah. and Shane and send the exact same email. So one of the things that I realized with my company, which is like a consulting and, and sort of strategy, we call it a creative advisory. But I, I realized that I was spending a lot of time talking to people who may or may not have become my clients. Right. Right. And that was very inefficient for me. So it was like, wait, did I just like I first I'd go meet with someone, which meant I couldn't be writing. Then we would talk and I'd have to give them a ton of ideas on the spot. Then they'd be like, well, send me a proposal. Then I'd have to make a proposal and then we'd have to negotiate a rate and blah, blah, blah. Totally suboptimal. Yeah. So especially because I'm trying to run a lifestyle business, not trying to create a scaled 
major company. Right. So like, cause otherwise the whole point that that's why you hire people, but I was trying not to do that. So one of the things that I realized, and this has been a huge, not only source of growth for my company, but it's been a huge relief. I go like, look, when, unless it's like a kid asking me for advice about life, my job is to give companies advice on how to grow, how authors, how to write books, people, how to, you know, think about stuff. Um, you know, how to market things. So if you'd ask me that, I'm not going to respond to that email. So what I, and, and I'm not going to get together to pitch you on why you should pay me to tell you how to do that. So what I've come up with is by giving you the answers that you're looking for to begin with. I'm not going to give you, you know, some of my answers and then try to hold some stuff back. Right. And then, you know, it's, it's just ridiculous. So what I came up with is all my clients, even ones I know I want to work with, I start with a paid strategy session. Right. So. I charge like 1500 bucks an hour. Um, and we get on the phone and like you can send me a little bit of stuff, but almost no prep. And then we get on the phone and then I will, I will not shoot the shit with you. I will give you my best work for an hour right about that idea, what you need to know, what I would think, what I would do if you hired me. Yeah. Like I'll give all my ideas away. And then, um, cause the, the, th- People think like the execution is the hard part, right. um, but to me, the thinking is the hard part. Right. So I'm not going to think for free and then get paid to execute. Right. I would rather get paid to think and then maybe get paid a little bit more to execute. Or right. if you want to hire someone else to execute, that's fine. So so then I do these sessions, which is on the one hand, it qualifies all leads because the people who are never going to hire me or are just milking me for free advice, they go away right away. Um, the people who can afford whatever I am going to charge are like, you know, they don't balk at the fee. So we work, we do, we, then we map out exactly what they should do. And then if they hire me or they hire my company, which is called Brass Check, that fee just counts again. So it's like, you know, let's say it we end up working for you. 20 yeah. or $30,000. It's like they paid a deposit essentially. That's a brilliant idea because I'm struggling. Like I'm overwhelmed with this, these people asking for advice, sure. which I love, right? Sure. Because it's a sign that you're doing something and people are valuing what you're doing. But on the same token, you're trying to make a living and you can't just give away, you know, yeah. 90% of your day. Well, um, a, a couple things. So one, uh, I hate the phrase, pick your brain. Like my brain is how I make my living. And I say that yes. to people, I go like, I would look, if I could, I would do all of this for free because I love it. But my wife would kill me. Uh, I wouldn't be able to eat. And more importantly, I have other clients who have paid me and it's not fair for me to do for, do for free for you what they pay me for. Right. So I, I can't do it for free. I'm sorry. If that, like, I totally understand if that pisses you off and like, let's not work together. And so, um, there's that. And then the other thing is you have to value your time. Like Neil Strauss, um, he, he has a thing where he's like, look, I can buy my own coffee. You taking me out to coffee or like there's, if, if a consulting session for me for an hour is worth $1,500 and like you might think that that's too high, but plenty of people pay for it and almost all of them say it was worth it or worth many times that there's not a dinner in the world that you could pay for, that you could pick up the tab for that would cost $1,500. Right. right. So, um, and, that means I have to drive somewhere. I have to block. Like for this, it's like what I do. It not only the other hack is I go for a walk when I do these calls. So I get an hour walk in and I talk to people and I'm stimulated and it challenges me and it works out my chops. And then they leave with either a, in most cases, a plan they can totally execute themselves at a fraction of what it would have cost to pay to have me do it for them. Or we, it's the start of a really good relationship. And so 
that obviously worked out only by trial and error, but it's it's been a huge relief for me because I have a way, I can just pass these things to a coordinator, he negotiates it, and then I either get to talk to someone and we do awesome work together or, you know, nobody, no, I don't feel like I'm giving a piece of my life away. There's a quote from Seneca where he's like, let no man take uh, a day of my life without, um, you know, giving me something worthwhile in return. And right. like, we sell our time for money. That's what we do. Don't give it away. And... You know, that, that's just how I think about it. I think that's the perfect way to end this. Listen, this has been a fascinating conversation, even the, the second take. <laughs> uh, but uh, I really appreciate you taking Thanks, the man. time. And uh, we'll have to do this again sometime. For sure. Hey, guys. This is uh, Shane again. Just a few more things before we wrap up. You can find show notes at farnhamstreetblog.com slash podcast. That's F-A-R-N-A-M s-t-r-e-e-t-b-l-o-g dot com slash podcast you can also find information there on how to get a transcript and if you'd like to receive a weekly email from me filled with all sorts of brain food go to farnhamstreetblog.com slash newsletter this is all the good stuff i've found on the web that week that i've read and shared with close friends books i'm reading and so much more thank you for listening